Hello, and welcome to Public Books 101, a podcast that turns a scholarly eye to a world worth studying. I'm Caitlin Zaloom, an anthropologist at New York University. And I'm Nicholas Dames, an English professor at Columbia. And we're the editors-in-chief of Public Books, a magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship that's free and online. In this five-part podcast series, we've brought together 10 of the world's top scholars and writers to help us understand the internet. Where did the internet come from? What kinds of new culture is it producing? And what's it doing to us as individuals and societies? The internet has become the air we breathe. I think we don't understand enough how its force affects us. The internet has changed the way we think about ourselves, the way we interact. Before, the internet seems like a foreign world. So we know it's changed. We don't yet quite know how it's changed. And I'd love to learn more about that. Your host for this season will be Annie Galvin, our associate editor and a public fellow at the Mellon Foundation and the American Council of Learned Societies. We'll turn the mic over to her now. And thanks so much for listening. We're glad you're here. Hello and welcome. I'm Annie, your host for this season. A quick bit of background about me. I'm an old millennial, which means that I had an internet-free childhood, but as soon as my friends and I discovered AOL chat rooms in middle school, for better or worse, probably for worse, it was all over. The internet became life. Now, my experience of the internet is not universal. Barriers to access remain, and practices like surveillance and data mining affect individuals and communities differently. That's something we'll explore this season. But I think that a lot of us these days really take the internet for granted as we talk to our loved ones on tiny screens, or log into Gmail for another day of work, or try to keep up with the truly relentless stream of news updates. I, for one, have definitely lost some of the magic that I felt back in 1997 when I would log into my AIM account, screen name Annie Goose, to see which of my friends and crushes were online. Welcome. You've got mail. To understand how we got from there to here, let's go back to the very beginning, after World War II, to figure out who built the internet and whose interests it was built to serve. Today, I'm joined by two scholars who've written groundbreaking, field-shifting books about the internet's origins and history. I'm Fred Turner. I'm the Harry and Norman Chandler Professor of Communication at Stanford University. And I'm Charlton McElwain, Professor of Media, Culture, and Communication at New York University. If you want to understand how the internet started, these are the two people you want to talk to. Thanks so much to both of you for being here. I'm really happy to have you. So the first question that we're asking all of our guests is, what does being on the internet in 2020 feel like to you? So this could be a description, a metaphor, a feeling, a word, anything that captures the experience of being online now to you. Fred, why don't we start with you? When I go on the internet today, uh, it feels like I'm entering a shopping mall. Um, some of my friends are there. Um, there's a nice place to hang out. But the experience is really structured by commercial imperatives, the need to track and sell. Yeah, that's great. How about you, Charlton? I would have to say that being on the internet today feels like work, um, work all the time. And so mm. uh, there was a, a day when this thing that we call the internet was a place to go to sort of escape certain things. Uh, today, it feels a lot like the stuff that you have to do uh, day in and day out. So today, we'll definitely be drawing on your work across many different domains. But I think that we'll mostly be focusing on two books that you've written, and so that would be Fred's From Counterculture to Cyberculture, Stuart Brand, The Whole Earth Network, and The Rise of Digital Utopianism, which was published in 2006. And Charlton's book, Black Software, The Internet and Racial Justice from the Afronet to Black Lives Matter, which was published in 2019. So to give some context for our conversation today, I would love it if you could each just give kind of a brief summary elevator speech about what your book is about. So uh, let's start with you, Fred. What is, um, how would you synthesize your book in a couple sentences? <laughs> <laughs> the dreaded question. <laughs> no, no problem. So so my book was, was an attempt to solve a, a problem. I um, woke up in the late 1990s having written a book about how Americans remember the Vietnam War. 
And at that time in the Vietnam War, computers were the emblem of the Cold War military state. So I moved to California in the late 1990s, and there's Wired Magazine. And all of a sudden, there are these hippies, and they seem to be promoting the internet as a countercultural technology. And this just made no sense to me at all, since I knew that in the 1960s, computers had been, been so much the military industrial technology. And so I was trying to figure out what happened. And I ended up tracking Stuart Brand and a group of folks who got together in the early 60s, or sorry, mid 60s, around the whole earth catalog, and stayed together all the way until the mid 90s in different contexts and brought us uh, Wire Magazine, um, the phrase personal computer, um, the phrase electronic frontier, and a lot of the ways that we came to think of the internet as a utopian, democratic, democratic egalitarian technology. And for those of us who might not be super familiar with the Whole Earth Catalog, could you give us a brief sense of what it was and what role you think the catalog played in the development of the internet? So the Whole Earth Catalog was first published in 1968 as a service to people who were heading back to the land as part of the commune movement. Stuart Brand and his then wife Lois um, visited a series of communes um, and they wanted to find out what kinds of tools people needed to, to head back to the land. When they figured that out, they created a catalog and you couldn't buy things through the catalog. What you got was a list of tools and descriptions of the tools and then you were shown how to get it for yourself. So Steve Jobs would later call the whole earth catalog kind of an early Google. And it's, it's sort of correct. Amazon's first designer originally worked for the catalog. Awesome. Thank you. And so, Charlton, what is Black Software about? Black Software uh, began as a way to try to answer the question, where did Black Lives Matter come from and what were its digital roots? What it turned into was really uh, much more of a history of Black people's relationship to computing technology and to uh, the internet more specifically. All right, great. So let's get into it. Um, and I'm first going to ask a pretty basic question that I'm almost embarrassed that I have to ask, but I spend a ton of time online, like I think a lot of people, basically every day. And when I think about it, I realize that I actually have basically no idea what this place is where I am when I'm spending time online. So, you know, when I send an email, for instance, where does it go? We're talking on Zoom. What are we actually talking on? Um, and I'm really hoping that you two having written books ostensibly about the internet can kind of help me out there. So quite literally, what is the internet? <laughs> Who wants to go? Ooh, well, <laughs> How would you explain a, it to a child? As, yeah. as I was preparing this, I thought uh, <laughs> it sounds like a simple question, but not um, no, yeah. not a simple uh, answer. And I think, you know, one way to describe it is simply as a network of computers uh, that's connected by hardware and uses software to facilitate the messages that we send uh, to and from those computers. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll, I'll tee it up for the later part of our discussion, but I think uh, this is no small question to ask, what is the Internet? And to think about it either in terms of that hardware and software structure or to think about it something uh, more aligned with uh, people and users and content. Um, and I think there's a fundamental difference in framing uh, that question, what the Internet is, uh, depending on those two uh, ways that we could go about it. I really agree with Charlton on that one. And I want to add a third term, which is institutions. Mm -hmm. You know, when we think of the Internet as a technology, it's a lot like um, a massive train network. You have a whole series of packages of information, each like a train car, that can be coupled and decoupled and recoupled and ultimately sent down a complex network of tracks to another computer. And as a sort of technological system, it's very open, um, sort of beautiful. But layered on top of that are just like with a train system, there are cities, there are institutions, there are companies, there are governments, there are states, all of whom have interests at stake in how the trains run, and all of whom come to the train line with longstanding complex cultural, political, commercial agendas. And one of the deepest mistakes that I think scholars have made around the internet, especially in the 90s and early aughts, is reading it as open simply because the technology was open. Mm. And, and I think that's, that's just, as Charleston's book shows very clearly, not the case. Absolutely. I'm really interested in how even just at this early question, you're bringing up this almost existential 
question of what the internet is. Is it the hardware, the software, or is it, you know, the people, the institutions, the other stuff that happens through and on it? So both of your books tell stories that start during World War II, basically, and go all the way up into the present day. And as you've already pointed out, you know, they're just as much social histories as they are histories of technology. And um, I want to kind of just start by focusing on the technology itself. And I'm wondering, at what point would you say that there actually was a technology that was invented that counts as an internet? Um, you know, a kind of prototype of what we're talking on right now on Zoom. Yeah, that, that's a it's a really tricky question. And yeah. it, it's much trickier than it maybe it seems. If, if you sort of just did it on the basis of machines, you know, you might look to the late 1960s and to Doug Engelbart's uh, famous mother of all demonstrations um, in Silicon Valley, in which he demonstrated the, the possibility of connecting computers over telephone lines with images and text transported back and forth. And, you know, you might look at the DARPA funded, Defense Department funded um, Internet of the late 1960s, and you might think that was it. I think that the sort of intellectual framework that the internet, early internet developers are working with, and, and it also just parenthetically shapes a lot of AI today, it emerges much earlier. And it emerges in the first few years before digital computing even appears. So the first digital computer comes into being in 1948. In the mid-40s, you know, you have a series of technologists, engineers, social scientists, all coming together, and they formulate the pseudo-discipline of cybernetics. And cybernetics contains within it a vision of a world of linked information systems, information systems that ostensibly have no place, no institutional connection, no race, no history, just patterns circulating. And I think that vision dramatically informs what the thing we're going to call the internet becomes and how we think about it, as well as what the American counterculture thinks it's doing with technology. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, Charlton, how would you answer that? Yeah, again, you know, com complex set of answers. And I think there is that thread that goes uh, way back into the, um, the, the time that Fred was discussing. Uh, my mind goes towards, um, around the late seventies, early eighties, that kind of that transition moment where places like IBM were building and putting into place what would become sort of a commercialized internet, meaning exploiting this ability for computers to connect. And then to connect to um, ways of us solving uh, problems. And so, you know, by the, the late 70s, early 80s, IBM had begun to utilize uh, this kind of Internet that was still sort of an intranet. Uh, but it was a way that technicians out in the field could communicate with folks mm -hmm. back in the office um, and do that uh, in real time. Uh, and so that's uh, part of the internet that I'm thinking of in that transition space between defense institutions and on its way into more commercial uses. I think this is a really important point, and, and I want to double down on it. You know, the, the story that we tell about the origin of the internet often involves just focusing on the Defense Department and the DARPA research of the late 1960s. Um, but the internet that ultimately went online publicly in the early 90s was composed of a variety of networks, many of which were in fact commercial and corporate sponsored, just as Charlton's pointing out. And we can think of the first public internet when the NSF backbone goes online in the early 90s as a, as a fusion of an early government initiative and a series of corporate initiatives to take advantage of that early government funded research. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that a lot of us have heard, you know, rumblings of different narratives like the ARPANET, which was you know, which gestated in the Department of Defense. I remember when I was growing up, Al Gore had claimed to have invented the internet. So for a long time, I thought that Al Gore had just sort of thrown the internet together one day. Um, and so I'm wondering, before you um, started writing your books, which I think are both sort of counter histories to those dominant narratives, what were some of the main stories or understandings that were widely accepted about the origins of the internet? Yeah, well, I think, you know, my uh, dominant sort of framing came and sort of hit me very abruptly as I was just sort of peeking around here and there about uh, sort of origin stories, if you will, or varying histories. And I remember one day uh, picking up a, 
a handbook of um, black inventors, I think it was called. Hmm. Uh, so a big, thick book that goes through uh, black folks that were part of inventing all kinds of things, uh, some of them technological, some other. Uh, and I remember looking up the internet, and I remember this book, which was authored by a number of African-American scholars, uh, but it said something like this, that nowhere in our research have we found that any Black person has been instrumental in the founding or invention of the internet. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking at that moment, you know, wow, that is profound um, a, a statement uh, to, to, to make. Um, number two, I don't believe it. Um, and number three, and this gets back to where we began, I thought there's only one way of construing that kind of a statement, um, meaning a very narrow description and definition of what the Internet is to be able to come away and say uh, that black folks had no way of contributing. So mm. I think, you know, like like most folks, the dominant narrative was about the Internet as a technical um, thing, mm. as uh, hardware, as software. Therefore, its inventors uh, were largely white male figures from leading tech institutions and engineering institutions um, and then left out uh, most others that were or had a, a role in that. Mm. Fred, how would you answer that? What were some of the dominant frameworks that you sort of wrote into? Yeah, I'll, I'll get right to that. But I want to uh, point to something that Charleston's pointing to, too, that I think is sure. really important, which is our understanding of what the Internet is has been constructed over time. Um, the, the Internet isn't just a natural thing in the world that is what it is no matter what. Um, on the contrary, a, a variety of intellectual communities, um, advertising communities, commercial communities have sought for their own purposes to define this thing called the Internet in, mm. in ways that um, privilege their own advantage. And, and that's that's part of what we're, we're both, I think, chronicling here. I ran into the internet um, in the mid 90s. I had come west. I'd been a journalist for 10 years in Boston and I'd written a book about how Americans remember the Vietnam War. And I went back to grad school and I was fully intending to continue to study, you know, masculinity gone wrong and combat violence. And I got to California, San Diego, and the internet was, was all over it. And I, I, I didn't know what the internet was and I began to engage it. And I ended up seeing two distinct stories. One story was it's a new technology, it's computers being interlinked. Um, it's technologically interesting and sophisticated. The other story that I kept seeing was, wow, the internet is really cool. Finally, we can have a one-to-one -one society. Finally, the hierarchical mass society of mid-20th century America can go away. Um, everybody can contribute. Everybody can collaborate. Finally, we're going to be a free society of individuals. And of course, that's as old an American dream as there is. Mm. And so... I got really curious about how those things had come together. And that's what I've, I've been trying to figure out is sort of how the story of the internet became the utopian story that's still very much alive in Silicon Valley today. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. As I mentioned, both of your books start basically kind of during and right after World War II, which of course was an extraordinarily historically, globally traumatic event. And then the Cold War begins shortly thereafter. What were some of the ways that people were thinking about computers and technology in that moment? Were people scared? Were they excited? I think it depends a lot on who you were. <laughs> you know? Totally, yeah. Um, if, if you were a corporate leader in the late 40s and early 50s, you were pretty excited. Um, you seem to have this new technology, large mainframes, room-sized mainframes that could process enormous amounts of data, help you keep track of your business better. So one way to think about computing in that period was as a kind of new centralization of institutional power in corporations, in governments. Um, a lot of Americans in the 50s especially were worried that large centralized computers would suck up pictures of themselves and um, become a kind of authoritarian force in society. Mm. Now, we may be headed there now, but that's a second question. <laughs> Sounds familiar, um, yeah. Yes, uh, we weren't there in the 50s. There's another story about that, about the computers in the 50s, though, which runs right alongside that sort of fear of centralization. And that's the dream of a decentralized information environment. And that's the dream that emerges with cybernetics, the work of Norbert Wiener at MIT, 
And these folks really think that the world itself is a probabilistic system. It's nothing but signals, information signals, signaling back and forth. And you see this line of thinking in Wiener's work, in the political science of Karl Deutsch, in the economics of Friedrich Hayek. You see this idea of the world as a bounded system in which information is circulating back and forth. And all we have to do to make the world a better place is to give every person the ability to signal authentically and sincerely to someone else, receive feedback from that person and move on in the world. Those two visions, the visions of a distributed information system and a centralized computing technology are to some extent in tension with each other um, mm. in the years after World War II. Mm, that's great. And Charlton, among the communities that you were studying in your book, what kind of a sense did you get about perceptions about computing kind of in the days of the early Cold War? Well, I think, you know, they're, uh, you know, like Fred, they're sort of uh, dual and dual depending on the communities that you're talking to and, you know, the the individuals within uh, those communities. But I think there was a a sense of uh, folks that were particularly uh, African-American folks who were also working in the defense industry, uh, working with computers in that uh, sort of command and control uh, defense um, uh, era and began to see computers in the ways that folks like Tom Watson Jr., um, head of IBM at the time, really started to define them, which is as problem-solving machines. Um, and so I think, you know, even in, and I'm thinking of, you know, the, the late 50s, early 60s, mid 60s, you know, you start to have two sort of uh, concerns and questions, and that is, a, how will this new uh, form of power uh, be used against us hmm. uh, in the ways that all previous ones uh, have been, if we're thinking about black communities and so forth? But the other that starts to emerge, and I think it's important that it begins to emerge at this time, even if it's just as a, a sort of an imaginary, which is, could this be, and to what degree might this be a road towards uh economic opportunity for black folks. So I think to have that kernel, kernel of both, uh, you know, sort of history and caution, but then that kernel about what is future possibility, uh, I think is important in thinking about the early uh, days of computing. Definitely. Um, thanks. And that kind of takes us into the scenes of your books. And I would say part of what makes both of them so enjoyable to read is that they're, you know, they're histories, but they're really stories about people. They're populated by these fascinating characters who traversed many domains of American life from art to politics, technology. And I would love it if you could each highlight a character or two whose stories you tell in your book. So maybe we can start with Charlton. Um, in Black Software, you're, you're kind of telling this collective history of a group that you call the Vanguard. Um, and I'm wondering if you could first explain what you mean by that term or that grouping, and then maybe highlight one or two members of the Vanguard, you know, how they got into computing and maybe what their lasting impact was on the field. Yeah, thank you for that. So the I, I term this group of people, large group of folks, uh, the Vanguard, to really signal that they were part of that way of building what we would come to call the internet or the web. Uh, but doing so before the web itself came online. So folks who were largely, you know, in the late 70s, 80s, et cetera, preparing and paving the way for uh, what would ultimately become the web. But, you know, two people really come to mind. One uh, is a guy named Kamal Al-Mansur, um, who just, you know, tells this vivid story of, you know, being a young kid, going to college at UCLA, then going up to San Francisco to go to law school, ends up back in Southern California at Jet Propulsion Labs. Hmm. And this is, you know, the beginning of uh, sort of a, a new wave of thinking about and building uh, software. He was doing uh, tech transfer work uh, for JPL. Uh, essentially writing the underlying legal agreements that would buy new technologies that were being bought and then uh, sold either to companies or governments or what have you. Um, and he tells this story about, you know, looking around one day and saying, wow, and all of this new work around computers and software that's developing, I don't see anyone like me. 
I don't see any of us being a part of it. I don't see any of us benefiting from it. And, you know, he, he ultimately saw that as a bankrupt uh, place to be both personally and professionally. Ultimately, um, he went on from there, built what was called AfroLink software. And really what it was, was building and digitizing images and information and putting those largely on CD-ROMs uh, that circulated and sold that told stories about uh, Black folks that were absent the, the sort of software narratives uh, of the time. And so it's a very vivid story of just one man who said, look, I, this cannot be, and we mm-hmm. cannot have this software explosion mm-hmm. without us, and took it on himself to build a lucrative commercial company to counter that. The other person I'd mention uh, really quickly is a woman named Anita Brown. And Anita's story was also one that was uh, very vivid. She was 50 or so before she even picked up uh, and turned to the web she had nothing but a high school education, was a legal secretary, but got online, uh, found herself immersed and connected in a social web and network uh, that she built uh, called Black Geeks Online. <laughs> and her importance, her significance came in that she mediated varying factions of early Black cyber, cyber culture which are really kind of cut into two large areas, I would say, which is uh, black folks who at the time in the early mid-90s were saying, uh, here's a new technology that we could use for social communal uplift. And those who quite quite frankly saw it as a way and means for economic opportunity and simply Mm -hmm. said, I want to make money. Uh, And those two sides were frequently at odds Anita was the one to bring those folks together and say, look, this thing is for all of us and can be uh, for all of our uh, betterment. Yeah, that's great. You mentioned that AfroLink software that Kamal Al-Mansour built, and I was really struck in reading it that it, it, if I'm correct, began as basically a database of clip art. I mean, I hadn't heard the term clip art since I was, you know, in in grade school trying to put together little book reports. Um, But it it struck me as it's a really similar project to, I think, a lot of what is happening on contemporary social media, where it's really um, an effort to expand representation and visibility. I mean, it seemed like Kamal basically realized if you wanted to make a flyer or a newspaper, there were just like no digital images that weren't of white people. <laughs> so right. let's invent this database. And that, it, it, to me, that really resonated with, you know, movements like Oscars So White, you know, that are happening now, which mm-hmm. are really about bringing into visibility people who um, unjustly are are not as visible in the culture. Yeah, and that's very much uh, on point. And uh, Kamal's first product uh, was called CP Time Online. Mm, right. And it was just a collection of, of clip art, uh, yeah. clip art that featured black people, black images. And so his project was very much a project about representation mm. and bringing that into the new digital environment. Yeah, that's great. Um, and so, Fred, so Charlton was talking about this group uh, the Vanguard. And I think in your book, you know, you uh, you trace a group that you call the new communards. So kind of the back to the land hippies in the 1960s. And I think that a lot of us, myself included, the notion that a book about the development of the internet would sort of be about communes is a little bit surprising. So I'm wondering if you could briefly talk about, you know, what do you mean by that term, the new communards? And what the hell did they have to do with the internet? <laughs> sure. I can absolutely walk us through that. Um, I, I do want to respond to something Charlton's saying because I think it's sure, really yeah. important too, which is that it, it was fascinating to me in reading your book, Charlton, to see how important individual actors were. And I was really struck that that was one of the things that made the internet the internet. Unlike television when it comes along or radio when it comes along, you know, those are mass media and almost immediately the government is involved in regulating who's appearing on these things, who's not. With the internet, a lot of the fights that were fought were fought by individuals and individual networks because it is a sort of many-to-many medium. And I just think that makes it really different. And one of the things that I think we're trying to recover from now is that individualism. Mm-hmm. And when we have massive systems like Facebook or, or Google, you know, those are systems that have been built on the backs of all these individual efforts. 
mm-hmm. but have ended up in the kind of place where they've become almost a mass medium like radio and television before. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. one of the things we're really struggling with is how do we legislate these now mass media coming from a place where we've all been working kind of individually for a very long time. Mm. I just wanted to get that off my chest. I think, yeah, I think yeah. it's, it, so. it's a really important feature of the internet as distinct from other, other media. Uh, the new communalists were really fun. You know, they were, <laughs> they were different. Um, so, so, okay. So I, I have to tell this a, a little bit more, more um, personally. Um, I went back to grad school. I was 35. I had a family. Um, and I wanted to study, um, the counterculture and my friends just thought I'd lost my mind. It's like, look, Fred, there's this thing called the internet happening and you want to read about hippies? Like, what is your problem? (laughs) And, you know, honestly, I I really thought I was blowing my career and and my friends certainly did too. And so I started rebuilding this sort of ESL business that I had. And I I thought I was just going to do that and, you know, the heck with it, but I'd at least write the book. One of the things that was most challenging as I was sitting in these back offices reading the whole earth catalog was starting to notice that the folks I was studying, these communalists were really different than the new left. And I had grown up on a story that said, ah, you know, the counterculture, it was all one big technicolor thing. It happened in the sixties. And, you know, there was Abby Hoffman and the yippies and the Panthers and everybody was friends and they all marched against the war during the day. And then they all dropped acid at night. And it was just one big movement. And it became very clear to me very quickly that that wasn't true. And it, it, the, the consensus view was so strong that I didn't say anything to anyone <laughs> about that, what I was finding in my own stuff for a year. Mm. And what I found in my own stuff was that, no, actually, there was the new left very much centered in Berkeley, um, near Oakland, where the Panthers were, um, much more political. And there were these commune-based folks who really didn't have a name who were much more centered in San Francisco, much more oriented toward um, taking things like LSD and using them to get their heads together. And so I I had to give them a name just because they were such a distinct movement. And I called them the New Communalists. Um, They believed that politics was bankrupt and that the Mm. way that you could change the world was by taking up the technologies that were produced by the military industrial complex, everything from automobiles to stereos to electric guitars to LSD, and take it into your personal life, use it to reform yourself and the community immediately around you, change your consciousness. And once your consciousness had been changed individually and in the small group of friends, you would create a model for the world at large, and the world at large would begin to live as you lived. And that was the function of the communes. You know, between 1966 and 1973, we had the largest wave of commune building in all of American history. Conservative estimates say 750,000 Americans went to live on the land. Um, less conservative estimates say it's over a million. Um, in many cities today, the fact that you can live with uh, roommates of the opposite sex to whom you're not related um, was a function of the commune movement and the ways they changed the laws. <laughs> so it's it's a huge movement, but it's, it's a movement that's in many ways a kind of retreat from politics. Mm. And when that retreat happens, technology gets embraced as a site and source of cultural change, and particularly information technologies. I mean, you know, one of the things that shocked me was reading the Whole Earth Catalog, which was a, a, a kind of guide to tools for people heading back to the land, first published in 1968. And there on page four or five was, was Norbert Wiener's book, Cybernetics. And I'm thinking, <laughs> you, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to build a farm in the countryside, yeah. why am I carrying a book about, <laughs> about information theory? And the answer turned out to be that for the new communalists, and not the new left, but for the new communalists, information theory, information technology, the ability to imagine the world as a, as a sort of mystical signal system, was their politics. Mm. If we can just get the technology right and get our consciousnesses shaped so that we can collaborate together, we are going to need bureaucracy, institutions, governments, states, or any of it. Now – from where we're sitting today, you can hear how those ideas feed fairly directly into the libertarianism and neoliberalism of the 1990s. And, yeah. you know, those ideas are the ideas that drive Wired Magazine. And and I don't think it's that surprising, though it is quite painful, that Wired Magazine featured positive stories about Newt Gingrich. Yeah, I mean, again, I think the fact that Ken Kesey and Newt Gingrich are in the same book, not necessarily as antagonists or polar opposites, but as kind of two plot points um, in a common history. Can can I I I address that directly? I I think that another myth that I 
had always been told about the counterculture was that it was in fact counter to mainstream American culture. Mm. And the more I dug into it, the more I began to think that wasn't actually true, especially the new communalist wing embraced catalogs as their technology of change. You know, and I yeah. asked Stuart Brand about that. He said, yeah, I modeled it on, on the L.L. Bean catalog and, and, mm. and on a little bit on the Sears catalog. Those are central elements in American commerce. The, the folks associated with new communalism absolutely believed in technology and commerce as engines of benevolent cultural change. Yeah. Well, that's the same kind of thing that a lot of folks on the right believe today. You see some of those same fissures come into play in uh, early black uh, cyber, cyber culture where you have folks that are uh, you know, black conservatives who are really embracing this road to economic uh, independence and layering that on the sort of bootstrapping and so forth that comes out of the conservative uh, community. Uh, and so all those, I think, plays out in varying uh, dimensions here. Mm, yeah. A term that's come up from time to time in the conversation so far is institutions. And I think, um, as Fred was just saying, you know, a lot of the the groups that you talk about were sort of, at least they saw themselves as trying to kind of drop out of institutions. But Charlton, especially in the early part of your book, you actually, um, you spend a fair amount of time kind of exploring what was happening within these incredibly powerful institutions like the Department of Defense, universities like MIT and Clemson, and certainly the corporation IBM. Um, and so, Charlton, I'd be curious if you could tell us a little bit about what was happening in, say, an institution like MIT in the 1950s and 60s, kind of what was the culture like and what was it like for young black engineers to try to move in and through a space like that? Yeah, MIT you know, emerges as one of the uh, elite science and engineering institutions. This is a place where new technologies are being imagined, conceived of, and built. And it's, you know, part of the story is about representation or better yet, the lack thereof. And so for, you know, for one, when you're thinking about the late 50s, early 60s, uh, there were very few. Um, and, you know, in terms of year by year enrollments, often uh, counting folks on two hands, the number of African-Americans that were uh, enrolling at places mm -hmm. like MIT. Um, and I think that had very real um, consequence because there was this sense of um, or sort of depoliticization of this new technological uh, environment. I found it fascinating thinking about this moment in 1961 where you have this group spring up at MIT who want to help and aid the Southern Civil Rights Movement, uh, who are vociferous in speaking out about inequality and about uh, racial segregation, uh, both on campus at MIT, but also in a broader uh, network. And then to see how that all sort of dissipates, um, and in part dissipates, I think, because there was no other conversation in the broader institution that connected that level of activism to what was going on in the university, in uh, the labs, in the connections between the university and industry. Uh, so there was that disconnect that then ends up simply as disappearing in an institution that says, look, our one and only job is to build uh, elite institutions of engineering. Mm. Um, and politics is not really uh, a part of that. And I think that opens the door to think about technology as simply this tool that can be used uh, to do anything, irrespective mm. of what that means or what its outcome uh, is. And I think that's what opens the door for, uh, you know, 1965, 66, 67, when, you know, these new problem-solving machines take their uh, focal point and make their focal point uh, black people as the nation's enduring problem and what that turns into ultimately in terms of the rise of uh, uh, the carceral state, the rise in mm. uh, the massive ways in which we profile, arrest, 
uh, and imprison uh, black and brown folks uh, and the technological foundations that made that happen uh, there in the mid-60s. I think this is one of the most exciting parts of your book, Charlton, I, I, especially your, your part on MIT, uh, where I used to teach and, and, and where I experienced some of the things that you describe. Um, the fantasy that has animated so much of the, the computer development world, I think, is a fantasy of making a technology, computation, information systems, that is beyond politics and ready mm-hmm. for the next step, better than politics, something that we can right. implement <laughs> technocratically instead mm-hmm. of politics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I think your work has done and that Mar Hicks's work and do- has done and Nathan Ensmager's work has done is remind us that the actual places in which these technologies were developed were sites of gendered and racial struggle. They were not neutral. They were places in which the um, the ethos of kind of, for lack of a better term, sort of universal whiteness and maleness were, were struggled for and actively mm-hmm. attached to computational technologies that in themselves as, te- as device technologies might have had more egalitarian purposes and uses. And I, I just think that calling that out and saying, no, 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 this didn't yeah. just happen. It was produced right. is really important. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, as you say, the fact that it wasn't as if there were no politics at MIT and part of the, <laughs> the narrative that gets told. And it's, it's uh, you know, especially palpable when you uh, read, as I did, through uh, the student newspaper, yeah. uh, mm. through the tech, you yeah. see it there and you see the few black faculty that are at MIT, the black students that are doing everything they can to say, A, we're here, we're being ignored. Um, We want our share of the pie. We want our ability to uh, contribute. Um, And it's a, it's a knockdown drag out battle in many, in many ways um, amongst both faculty and students, which then, makes it even more uh, egregious, I think, to say, look, when we come then to the lab, to building these new technologies, the idea that folks were not aware, folks were not a part of, people were not uh, uh, connected to outside of their windows, uh, what was going on, Mm -hmm. um, and think about what that meant for the technologies that were being built, I think, um, says a lot in terms of deliberate choices that were made. Yeah. Uh, to say what this was going to be about and for whom uh, and so forth. Yeah. I mean, you say a few times throughout the book, you know, yes, Black Americans were ultimately able to access and penetrate and contribute to these spaces, but it was so late, right? The train had kind of already left the station to some extent. Um, and I think similarly, Fred, you pointed out how the communalists were so white middle, upper class, um, you know, kind of gender hierarchized in different ways. And I'm, I guess I'm curious about what, what you think the effect of those exclusions actually might've been on the technology. Like Charlton, you Mm. use this really interesting phrase very early in your book where you're, you say you're talking about two versions of black software, the kind that positively impacts black people and the kind that destroys them. So maybe we can hear from Charlton and then Fred, do you have a sense that these social exclusions ended up actually contributing to like the tech being kind of bad. Yeah. And I think both in the actual technology, but in a closely um, associated uh, idea, which is the, the motivation for building uh, the technology. Right. And so that's where that circumstance that I spoke to, where you have Lyndon Johnson who comes and in part this is a a push by white America, in part it's a political push by others in his cabinet to say, look, you really got to think about and do something about this so-called crime problem uh, in America. Uh, Johnson wasn't particularly convinced that there was a crime problem, um, but politically uh, uh, folks were saying that there was. And so... He very much spoke explicitly, as did others, about this problem of crime being an urban problem, a black problem, uh, a problem of uh, the ghettos. And so when you then call together a science and technology commission and say, our number one animating problem here is to try to figure out how do we mobilize computational tools to solve our problem of crime, that's a crime of blackness, that's a crime of poverty, that's a crime of urban areas, then you have a technology that gets fashioned with that 
in mind and for those purposes. And that's where you get the, uh, of course, the outgrowth of what we started to call criminal justice information systems Mm. that were focused very much on how do we find the likely perpetrators of crime and how do we ultimately try to both um, uh, mitigate what they uh, do, uh, ideally before that happens. But to start in with a racialized technology that comes about as a racialized, motivating, animating problem, I think that's where we set ourselves on a track that has been difficult, if not impossible, to, uh, to come back from. And I always think about some of the things that are in those early moments of technology where we very could have asked ourselves a very different question. We could have asked how this new technology could be used to promote varying forms of equity. Yeah, I think this is this is exactly right. And I think that um, in, in our line of work, we sometimes overestimate the, the power of technology and the design of technology to shape cultural and, and public life. And I, I think that the, the story in Charlton's book and in mine, um, are, these are stories of how um, cultural and political imperatives that long predate internet technology per se, come to be brought to bear on the technology and on its use. Uh, I just wanted to add to what Charlton was saying that, that in addition to the internal American management of the quote problem of black America and poverty, we had an international uh, effort underway at exactly the same moment that was equally racialized and that was in Vietnam. You know, we had Operation Igloo White in Vietnam in which we dropped sensors along the Ho Chi Minh Trail fed the data from those sensors back into servers in, in, in um, Saigon, and then ultimately back to the United States, and then dropped bombs based on what those sensors were telling us. And, you know, as you might imagine, the Vietnamese figured out fairly quickly that, that these were gameable, and um, it, was a, it was a fiasco, and it was a very bloody fiasco. And, you know, I, I think that we often mistake the internet as a, a technology of communication. I think it's always been from the get-go, as both our books show, um, also, if not even more primarily, a technology of management. Mm-hmm. And management technologies get used by people in power to stay in power and to maintain their power. And they get used in ways that mask um, the targets of those powers so, so that, you know, oh, you know, the Internet, it's not, not a racialized technology. It's just bits and bytes circulating through space. And, you know, meantime, it's being applied in a, in a racist manner. And, and I think that's, that's one of the challenges for folks like us is to unpack the social and cultural mm. forces that are shaping these devices such that we can push back where we should properly push back, which may not actually be in improving our communication online, but might in fact be in, you know, pushing back on racism in our society. Mm. Yeah, that's all really well said. Um, well, I think that was <laughs> that that took us to sort of a, a dark place. So maybe we can go to a, a happier place for a moment. Um, <laughs> We're in America. But, you know, it's all dark places right now. It's place. all dark places. I know. Yeah. Well, I, I think on a positive uh, level, I mean, I think in both of your books, you show how creative figures, artists, musicians were really attracted to computers and to the burgeoning internet. Um, Charlton, you some of the figures in the vanguard were um, DJs, or you write about Lee Bailey, who was a you know big kind of radio personality. And so I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about similarly kind of what attracted those figures to these early network technologies and maybe what impact they had. Yeah, and I really, um, as you were talking, I was thinking about Lee Bailey, thinking about E. David Ellington and Malcolm Cassell, and just how this this moment happened where, uh, you know, and I think this best comes across in that story about E. David Ellington and Malcolm Cassell, who ultimately built Net Noir. And on the one hand, you have this MIT and Stanford-trained computer scientist who really knows about the technology, who's uh, sitting up there at Stanford and working on the first uh, browsers and and so forth. And then you have this guy, E. David Ellington, who's an entertainment lawyer. But what he knows really is about Black culture and Black art and the ways that it connects to people. And so that was that, that moment and you know, I'd love to hear uh, sort of David telling that particular part of the story where he's like, look, I, I loosely understand what this technology is, just enough to know that what is really going to power it is not something 
technological.、Mm. Uh, you know, you guys up there are thinking about, you know, taking the phone book and reproducing it, and that's going to be the end all and be all of your new web. But I know that black culture animates the world. And that really goes back to you know the question where we began, which is what is the internet?、Mm-hmm. And for these folks who said, "Look, the internet isn't those、uh, pipes and cables and so forth that we've been talking about. It's about content that people will be connected to and find interesting、right. and want to connect to." And when they recognize that, they recognize, "Hey, we have a role to play here because、yeah. Black people have really always been at the center of cultural artistic production." Yeah, that's a great point, man. I mean, I feel like we could. I had so many other questions. <laughs> we could just keep talking forever, but I think continue actually, for a while. Yeah, <laughs> but one question I definitely want to make sure that we get to is, you know, a question about. The early idealism around the invention of the internet, essentially,、um, I think we've touched on that in different ways. You know, the the new communalist, this very kind of we are the world, we're all a system. The, the these networks have the potential to kind of topple hierarchies and level everyone out. And you know, there was certainly, I think, a degree of of utopianism among the figures that Charlton writes about. But I think. Where we find ourselves in 2020 is is definitely kind of a darker place. You know, it's not really a day on Twitter unless you see someone referring to Twitter as a garbage fire or a dystopian landscape. And we're all very familiar with the racism, misogyny, misinformation, all these terrible things that swirl through the internet. And I'm just kind of curious about how do you reconcile. You know some of the excitement around the early internet with some of the dread I think around the contemporary internet. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think a lot of this goes back to,、um, you know, as, as Fred brought up earlier, the ways in which that early idealism、uh, was sort of a fantasy in some real、mm, ways, meaning、yeah. that it was an idealism that was premised on、uh, a kind of. Depoliticization of this new uh, medium uh, in many respects, and、mm-hmm. so was really、uh, sort of rampantly calling out the idea that this was a raceless space, a genderless、mm-hmm. space,、uh, etc., completely free from all、uh, for all comers to participate in equally and egalitarianly, and、um, so I think part of this is going back and saying. Look, that idealism was not mm. realistic mm.、Uh, in the first place, and revisiting some of the folks like、uh, you know Lisa Nakamura and so forth, who very、mm. early on start to really write about this and say, "Look, this idea about a sort of race-neutral space is a fantasy and、yeah. uh, one that never really was." A lot of times, I spend my time these days telling folks, you know, we spend time trying to. Find answers. You know, what are we going to do given what the internet is now?、Mm. And I'd say, you know, spend a lot less time thinking of new ways to try to solve this problem. Go back to our history, and the answer is already there.、Mm. Uh, think about what we should have been doing and the battles we've been waging since the fifties and the sixties that are in that political terrain. And I think that's where. We have at least an opening and a window to think about、uh, where we move this thing forward in terms of this new uh, or this uh, internet environment, this digital environment, and what it looks like、uh, in the next ten, fifty years. I very much agree, and I, I love what you said about you know not trying to solve all of the problems of the moment as if those were all the problems that ever were. I think that's right. I think you know the virtue of history in this context is that. We can see the trajectories and the forces that have brought us to this moment, and they may not, in fact, be the technology. They may, in fact, be the fracturing processes of modernism. They may be racial tensions that are hundreds of years old. So, so these are the kinds of connections that we need to make, and and I think we need to, in some ways, as historians,、um, in some sense, get off the internet and 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 get back <laughs> to the books. Um, I, I'm not as pessimistic, I think, as as other folks are. I I, I feel very mixed.、Um, People are still people, and I think one of the fantasies of the early net, internet was that we could, once we were all connected, we would cease to be the complex, sometimes evil beings that all of us are.、Mm. And I think that was something that that you know is, is demonstrably false. But there's a flip side. Media, I, I think, and new media technologies are are a little bit like cityscapes. They might seem very imprisoning. They might seem like, oh my gosh, we've built these giant apartment blocks and we're all living in our little boxes. 
But in those apartment blocks, as we walk down the streets, it is the possibility of becoming a more cosmopolitan world. And I think a lot of the tension that we're seeing now, a lot of the polarization comes from collisions between peoples who never had to see each other before and never had to engage with each other before. Mm, yeah. And that's enormously encouraging. It's going to be hard. You know, imagine if you're a very conservative Southern Christian um, who suddenly sees Kowali music, Pakistani religious music, and your child is playing it in their bedroom. Like, what does that mean to you? You know, by the same token, if you're extraordinarily conservative Muslim in a, in a part of Afghanistan and suddenly your child is accessing the Internet and, and watching hip hop, what do you do with that? And I think that's an, a kind of collision, a cultural collision that, that an entire planet is undergoing almost simultaneously. And I'm kind of encouraged about it. You know, there, there are lots of ways of being a person in this world that were completely off limits in the world mm -hmm. that I grew up in just 50 years ago. One of the things that I think I hold out great hope for in the in the media world that we're in is an increase in this kind of cosmopolitan energy, cosmopolitan encounters with one another. It will be extraordinarily difficult. This is not tourism. This is the real deal. We have to figure out how to live together. But we have that opportunity. It's a difficult opportunity, but it's an opportunity that the Internet, like television and radio before it, have brought us. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I, I similarly, you know, I, I oscillate between the pessimism and optimism. Mm -hmm. um, but I, where I see the optimism, you know, I, I think back to the Black Lives Matter movement, and I think <laughs> a lot about the sort of this generational uh, shift. And, uh, you know, and there's a lot of complex politics in with Black Lives Matter, and part of that was due to young folks that simply said, look, um, you had your chance. You uh, you messed it up. Uh, get the hell out of the way. Uh, mm -hmm. It's our time, and we'll figure things out in new and creative ways, and not within the same frameworks that others have imposed on us. And I think, I think that's in part where I see that optimism that is mm. new generations who are eager to push back and make a way for themselves that is theirs. Um, punching holes in the walls uh, that we have built uh, around them. I feel the impulse, and a lot of that mm. impulse comes from folks that are uh, at the Facebooks and Twitters and so forth, and when they're outside of that environment saying, look, I know what the hell's going on, and I know the things that are going wrong, and I really want to try to find mm -hmm. a way around it and a solution through it, either in the place I'm at or in another venue, uh, their recognition and willingness to push back uh, gives me gives me hope. I get hope there too, and I I want to want to say that we, one of our challenges is to not get caught in the user producer zone of political change that these large corporations would like us to be trapped in. I, I think the problem actually is in us and in our society far more than in our devices, uh -huh. and mm -hmm. I think that you know since. Silicon Valley bubbled up into the world, it has marketed the user consumer space as the place in which to make change. You know, if we treat you badly, well, just change your settings. You know, no, that doesn't work. And so I think our challenge as analysts and scholars and citizens is to say, what are the things that we can do outside the individual space, outside the space of individual expression, outside the space of changing our user settings? To, to change this world. And, and mm. you know, uh, could we turn Facebook into a utility? <laughs> yeah. Could we cooperatively own these forces? Why not? Yeah, I mean, this is making me feel better. But part of where we can find the optimism is seeing what's happening in the digital spaces then being taken offline. You know, Charlton, you've written about the way that the Black Lives Matter movement online actually facilitates in-person activism. Um and I think I I saw this a lot when I was teaching undergrads and just the degree of acceptance that they have for, you know, gender and sexuality and racial diversity. It's like, it's almost like they've grown up on another planet than even I oh did. Oh boy. Yeah. And, and let me go one generation back, back farther than yeah, you yeah. and say, oh my gosh, like, yeah. you know, trying to keep up. I just, I, I walk in, the first thing I do is apologize. It's like, look, I'm sorry. I'm from another time and place, you know? <laughs> the internet is an environment and kind of growing up in that environment and then taking that out into, you know, face-to-face -face interaction. So maybe we can find some, <laughs> find some comfort um, with that. And that's our show. A huge thank you to Charlton McElwain and Fred Turner for sharing their knowledge about the early internet. You can find links to their work 
including a number of essays that Fred has written for public books, at publicbooks.org podcast. There you can also find a list of further readings on this topic, curated by our guests, in case you want to read further or use this material in your classes. And next time on Public Books 101, I talk to two of my absolute favorite writers who cover internet culture. Amanda Hess, a critic at large at the New York Times, and Jenny O'Dell, an artist and the author of the best-selling book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. So I hope you'll join me for episode two of Public Books 101, The Internet, as the three of us wonder, what exactly are we doing when we're spending time online? This podcast is a production of Public Books in partnership with the Columbia University Library's Digital Scholarship Division. Thank you to Michelle Wilson at the library for partnering with us on this project. This episode was produced and edited by me, Annie Galvin, with production assistance from Jess Engebretson. Our theme music was composed by Jack Hamilton. Special thanks to Kelly Dean McKinney and the editorial staff of Public Books for their support for this project. We'd be so grateful if you would subscribe to the show in Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. And if you like the show, please tell a friend or even a few friends. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Sorry, that's my telephone going off with a horrible uh, robocaller. Thank you.